So easy to follow introductions like that. <laughs> High bar. Um, well, thank you guys for letting us uh, have this opportunity to speak to you. I really, really greatly appreciate it. Uh, I will tell you that I don't feel great this evening. Um, so my wife is ready to take over at a moment's notice. <laughs> Should I need to step out? So with that in mind, let's open with a word of prayer so I can center my mind on this. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity uh, to be together. We're so grateful that you are the perfect father uh, in ways that we couldn't understand uh, when we first came to a knowledge of you and that uh, you constantly revealed to us throughout our Christian walk. Your patience is unbelievable, indescribable. Uh, your love for us, your vision for us. Uh, the fact that you forgave us of every sin we committed and every sin that we don't even know we will commit at the day of our baptism. Uh, you knew our whole life from A to Z, and, uh, and you had sacrificed your son to give us an opportunity uh, to love you back and uh, to enter into a relationship with you. And I just pray that tonight you minister to all of our hearts, uh, both teens and parents alike. Help us uh, to find uh, nuggets in your word that will just help inspire us to be what we need to be uh, as better sons and daughters to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let me start by just a quick recap. Uh, a couple things. One, my wife and I have three daughters, uh, 16 and 14 and 11 going on 12, and uh, all five of us are sinners. Sorry, Alex. And, uh, and we are constantly working on the very things that we're going to be sharing with you tonight. We are, I am not sharing these things because we've arrived. I'm sharing these things because I have a deep passion about them, uh, and I am diligently working on them as all of us are in our home. Uh, I would ask that tonight, to the best of your ability, forget about me, forget about my presentation, and just please, please open your heart to God's word. I think that he has things to say that are helpful, uh, and I just, I pray that you will uh, push past any of my weaknesses or my shortcomings and just hear God tonight. Um, so what have we talked about over the last few months? We've talked about that it's correct uh, for us to prioritize our lives to make sure that our God-given roles are being met first. It is very easy for us, it's easy for me uh, to spend my life putting out fires and then I look back at the end of a week or the end of a month and I realize, man, I haven't spent the time I needed to with my daughters, I haven't spent the time I needed to with my wife, I haven't spent, thank you, Mark. I haven't spent the time that uh, I needed to even in prayer, and, and yet I look back and I was so busy. And so it is appropriate, it is right for us to schedule ourselves with whatever tool you want. We handed out a calendar, use whatever you want, but make sure that you are living up to the roles that God has put you in first before you're putting out the fires. God will take care of those. Another thing we talked about in the subsequent month was the importance of our words. Uh, and how God expects us to guard our tongue and make sure that the words we are using breathe life into people around us rather than words that lead to death. Yeah. Uh, if you ever want to conduct a short but sobering Bible study, uh, just take a topical Bible and look for how much weight God places on words. 
Uh, not the least of which is a scripture where he says that you'll be held accountable for every single careless word you spoke. And we speak those to our kids in our frustration and our anger. Uh, so the first and most important step we can take uh, if we're going to move ourselves and our children out of a fear of God and, and fear of punishment into a love of virtue and a hope of re eternal reward, uh, we're going to have to speak life to them. We also talked about a child's conscience and how God gives all of us a basic conscience, a basic understanding of right and wrong. But if we as parents don't fill their moral warehouse with virtue, they will be left with this very, very basic conscience. And you see what that looks like in the world. It is so subjective. And it, you just pick who you're talking to and their, their belief system on what is appropriate, what's inappropriate, what's right, what's wrong. It's all over the map. And so we have to fill our children with, uh, with virtue uh, in the more beautiful way. Um, but what we're going to talk about today is even more practical than the things we've already discussed, and it's the concept of biblical obedience. Um, I do need to give credit where it's due. Most of what I'm sharing uh, comes from a lesson that's presented by a gentleman named Gary Ezzo. Uh, I have stolen much of uh, his wisdom in this area, and so uh, if, uh, if you think I'm really nailing it, you know, it's, it's Gary Ezzo. <laughs> So have you guys ever experienced a situation like this? Mom comes in, and the children are watching television, and she says, uh, boys, it's time to clean up the room. And uh, there's no response, but Mom's sure they heard. She takes off, goes back to the kitchen. A few minutes later, she comes back in. They're riveted to the television. Nothing has changed. And she says, boys, I'm serious. I need this room cleaned up now. And she puffs off into the kitchen and goes about her her business, and then a few minutes later, she comes back in and sees the boys riveted to the television and nothing has changed, and she says, this is frustrating. It looks like I'm going to have to get out the wooden spoon. You want me to get out the wooden spoon? And off she goes to get the wooden spoon. A few minutes later, and mom comes in, and she reveals the wooden spoon. You see this wooden spoon? I, I brought the spoon. You know what? I am telling your dad. You're going to be in such trouble with your father when he gets home. And as the mother bends down to start picking up all the toys, she begins the lecture about, I cannot believe, this is so disrespectful, I can't believe, and the whole time the boys are watching television. <laughs> and halfway through her picking up the toys, she says, and what are you watching on television? I'm not sure I approve of this. And that can be our experience with childhood obedience. But that's not biblical obedience. And I can't emphasize enough that in all areas of parenting, the Bible tells us how to do it. It's not always super obvious. It doesn't always have a header that says, parents, read below. But it's all there. I promise you that it's all there. But we have got to be committed to the Bible as our standard. Uh, and I will tell you, in more than any other area I've witnessed in my own life and the, in the life of others, we are so influenced by our own upbringing, and by our own society, that we become convinced of those things, we make them a foundation for ourselves, and then we try to sprinkle the Bible in. And we don't realize that we need to blow up all of our preconceptions 
go to the Bible and then start from there. And, and things that we had in our past that are appropriate and right and good things we learned from our parents or even our culture, we need to continue them, but they have to be mated up against the Bible. If we don't do that, we will succumb to cultural influences that are not accurate. Now, as we begin to look at biblical influence, I know that some of you will feel resistance welling up in your heart because obedience is not a topic that people say, oh, this is awesome, we're having a discussion on obedience. I love that word. And there's resistance that wells up in our hearts for all sorts of reasons. Maybe we had a uh, overbearing parent. You know, maybe we had a very legalistic authority figure. Who knows what it was? But often obedience has a taste in our mouth that is at least neutral, if not negative. But it's pretty rare that I run into someone that tells me just how much they adore and love and look forward to daily obedience. <laughs> but here's what I'm going to ask of you is if you feel that today, and as the message goes on, maybe you begin to feel overwhelmed or maybe you feel guilty or maybe you feel inspired, whatever it is, don't ignore the fact that you felt something uncomfortable about the topic of obedience. Don't ignore it because it's something you need to look into. It's something you need to figure out. It may take some talks with some brothers or sisters and it may take some time journaling, but I promise you that there is no such thing as a biblical virtue that is not beautiful. There is no such thing as a biblical virtue that is not inspiring, awesome, incredible, life-giving. And so when you happen across a biblical virtue where you feel negativity, something's wrong with your perception. It's not necessarily your fault that something's wrong with your perception, but you can't ignore it. You have to root it out and you have to deal with it. Romans 12.2 uh, talks about that with us. It says, do not conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Only then will you be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Gary Ezzo has a quote that I love. He says, calling a child to biblical obedience is not a problem for the child as much as it is for the parent. For such a standard calls parents to consistency and calls parents to deal with whatever negativity they have towards that virtue in their own heart. So let's talk about a couple verses we're all familiar with, and that is Ephesians 6.1 and Colossians 3.20. These are the all-too-familiar children-obey-your-parent verses. And they explain to us that obedience is essential to family governance. If children don't obey their parents, then family governance is broken and things will not go well at home. And that is where many of us stop in our pursuit to understand the depth of what God is actually saying. So let's look a little deeper just at these two verses, and then we're going to get into others. Number one, it says, this is the first command with a promise. The very first commandment God gave to the human race with a promise was the command to obey. And I think it'll become clear why as we continue. The second reason these verses say that we should obey is because it is right. It's right. It's the right thing to do. 
third reason is it says, so it may go well with you. And we all know that going well with us does not mean the health and wealth gospel. If it did, then somehow Jesus missed it. Because he definitely had, uh, you know, physical strain applied to him and certainly had hardship in his upbringing and was not a wealthy man. Number four, so that you may enjoy long life on earth. Enjoy. Not be happy. Have joy a long, during your long life on earth. And number five, it pleases the Lord. Those are reasons God says, children, obey your parents. And if you think about it, aren't these the exact same reasons that you instinctually want your children to obey you? I mean, think about it. When you call your children to obey you, it's because you know that if they will trust you and obey you, that it's the right thing to do. It will go well with them. It will result in a long and joy-filled life if they'll trust you and obey you. And it pleases you because it, it's the foundation of your relationship with your child. It's amazing how when the Bible says that we're created in God's image, that often... You know, we, we want these very things. We want obedience for all the right reasons, but sometimes we find it hard to give obedience in our own life. The goal of obedience is not to have an easy home with a robotic child. The goal of obedience is to transfer your child from a place where they submit to your, where a place where they will submit to your leadership out of a love of your relationship. If we don't help our children to be biblically obedient, then you will have a teenager who is challenged to submit to your leadership out of love for your relationship. Because if you do not have obedience, you have a broken relationship. And we're going to get to exactly how that works. What does biblical obedience look like? Well, you all know, I'm not going to read this for the sake of time, but Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham has been told after many, 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 many years and finally has a son to whom his inheritance is to go, the promised land, etc., God says, go sacrifice him. And here's all the scriptures say about Abraham's response. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. Now, can you just for a second try, it's impossible to really do it, but just try in some way to relate to what this guy must be going through. His only son. He's had, he has to take his son and sacrifice him. He gets up early and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God told him about. That's what it says about Abraham's obedience. What did he do? He got up early. He prepared himself. And he did what God commanded him. And what are some characteristics we see? Well, it was immediate. First thing in the morning, exactly as God had said. It was complete. He didn't cut any corners. 
It was without challenge. And it was without complaint. That's Abraham's example of obedience. Now, how does God interpret this? I love this verse. This is how God interprets what he sees Abraham do. This is after Abraham has his son on the altar and God says, Abraham, Abraham, do not harm your son. And here's why. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. What did obedience say to God? Through his obedience, Abraham said to God, you are my God. I trust you implicitly. I trust you through the agony of what you're asking me to do. I'm not going to challenge you. I'm not going to complain. I will do what you've asked me to do. Look at what obedience says to the person to whom you're submitting. That's what obedience is. Obedience isn't wrote, yes, mom, yes, dad, and you just struggle with everything they're telling you to do. No, obedience is, is an act of trust. It's an act of submission. It is saying to someone, I love you enough that I'm going to submit myself to you. And this was not his only act of obedience. Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith, uh, says the following. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Just think about this for your own life. No consistency, no place to call your home, living in tents as a middle or to older man. When you could have, so he was wealthy. He could have had so much more. But he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architecture and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, <laughs> and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. And I will tell you that that promise was largely fulfilled after his death. He didn't see it come to fruition through his earthly eyes. He saw it from standing next to God. A few, mo a few months ago, we spoke about how God elected to put his own son under Joseph and Mary. Why? because of Joseph's passionate commitment to listening to God's whisper in a dream and then obeying it down to the smallest element of God's command. There is nothing that keeps us from being just like these biblical characters. There's nothing that stops us if we can just catch a vision for what it means to just submit and obey to the creator of the universe through whom is the only way we will ever have complete true joy. So, based on these four characteristics, which were immediate, complete, without challenge, and without complaint, how do your children match up to biblical obedience? 
And how do you match up to biblical obedience? We have to first train ourselves and then our children. Let's look at another example that's not, uh, it's, it's very enlightening, although it's a little less uh, positive. In 1 Samuel, Samuel says to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to a message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put them to death. Men, women, children, infant, cattle, sheep, camels, donkeys. So... Verse 7, Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak was totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me has not carried out my instructions. Now Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There, Saul has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, I want you just to hear Saul's justification. Samuel, uh, sorry, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, then what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle I hear? And Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. You notice that? But we totally destroyed the rest. He has justified his lack of obedience. But there's one little teeny key in there that it's not the Lord my God. It's the Lord your God. I obeyed the Lord your God. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. I brought back Agag, their king, from the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For look at the root sins here. What's the antithesis of obedience? For rebellion is like the sin of divination. Wait a second, Samuel, I haven't confessed uh, to rebellion. I haven't agreed that I did that. 
And arrogance is like the evil of idolatry because we become our own idol. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. That finally struck home. It wasn't shaken Saul until he said, yeah, by the way, your kingship, it's gone. And then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. Here comes the truth. I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. So Sam, but Samuel said to him, no, I, I will not go back with you. You've rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and tore it. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. For he is not a human being that he should change his mind. So we've looked at a positive example of obedience. And we've looked at sort of a hard-hitting example of obedience. And I will tell you, truthfully, I see myself in both. It's hard to live in this culture. It is hard to go to work and sit with coworkers who are addicted to the world and you have to stand out, and you have to be different, and sometimes you don't know how to do it, and sometimes you just want to be, you, sometimes you just want to fit in, or you're tired when you get home, and you just don't want to sacrifice in this way, or whatever. There's just so many things that permeate our life, and if we don't learn to love obedience and the reward of obedience, then we will succumb to that. Because I promise you that fear of punishment the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. I do not want to negate the importance of the fear of God, but it cannot sustain you through a Christian life. You will grow weary. If your whole Christian life is summed up by your fear of God and punishment, you will grow weary and you will grow bitter. You have to learn to fall in love with virtue. Among so much else, this story drives home the point that, in be, that obedience is very important in the mind of God. For he says, to obey is better than sacrifice. God has a very lofty view of obedience. Why? Well, number one, obedience paves the way for learning. Look at John. You don't have to turn there, but just, I, you know this verse. John 8, 31 and 32. If you hold to my teachings, obey. If you hold to my teachings, then you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You ever not want to obey something until you understand it? Right? I remember, even as a child, I remember those discussions with my mom. Tell me why. You just, you got, it's almost like I, I'm owed a why before I will submit myself to this. Yet obedience paves the way to learning because many things can't be learned until you experience them through obedience. Number two, obedience is the display of submission and an acknowledgement of the order of the relationship. By obeying, I'm submitting to you. I'm acknowledging your role in my life. 
James 4, 7 and 8 says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Aren't those applicable adjectives? We're so double-minded. So easy to justify our decisions when we don't want to obey something. Number three, obedience protects us from our emotions. Isaiah 55.8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. By submitting ourselves in obedience to God, it protects us from the craziness of our own emotions. God says, I've got my emotions under control. I know the hairs on your head. I know the day of your death. I know every plan I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Just trust me. Obedience, number four, protects us from what we don't yet understand. Isaiah 55, 9. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We don't need to understand why before we obey. Number five, obedience is an act of trust. Look at, think about this first. John chapter 21, 18 and 19. Jesus says to Peter, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger and dressed yourself, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. At some point, every one of us is going to surrender our lives to God. I would sure prefer to do that with a clean conscience, knowing that I, I let God lead my life. I let God control my life. I let God do what he wanted with my life. I was so fortunate to get to take my family over to Rome uh, as a family vacation. And uh, there is the jail where Peter was held until his uh, death. And it's at the end of the Roman Forum, and it's, it is, it's very small. Um, trying to give an example, probably half the size, about two-thirds the size of this stage. And it's, it's underground, it's stone, and uh, no windows, and that's where he lived in this dark, damp dungeon. No bathroom, so you would have to just use the restroom in the corner. And every time it rained... Uh, because of its low proximity, it would flood, not to where it would drown the prisoners, but it would cause sewage to go everywhere. And that's where Peter lived. And when Peter was taken out of that prison, walked up a little staircase to an iron door that still, it's not the original door, but they've replaced it with a, an iron door that's all rusted. And through that door, you look out, and there is the unbelievable majesty of the Roman Forum that goes on for acres. I mean, 100-foot-tall columns, marble. I mean, just overwhelming, even for current uh, people that live currently, right, to look at that and just visualize what that must have been. And it just struck me to my core that Peter was led out of this prison off to the right, walking by the Roman Forum and all the bustle and everybody relying on their culture, addicted to the 
authority of Rome and the military prowess of Rome and this life that was lined with shops where they could get everything that they needed in this urban society and the first aqueducts and, and just the security that came from living in this. And Peter walked by it. No one cared. No big parade. No big crowd coming to his death. And writings from that time say that when the Romans put him to death, he asked them, please, I have one request. Just let me be crucified upside down. I don't deserve to die like Jesus. And can you imagine what was going through his mind, right? Every, I'm an apostle. And where are the Christians? My life is ending in almost in secrecy. Was this all for nothing? Just the things Satan must have been tempting him with. Honestly, the same things he must have been tempting Jesus with. And yet moments later... Peter ended up with God. And the big picture came into view. And I promise you he didn't regret at that moment. Number six, obedience is required. This uh, verse was read on Sunday. Uh, it's a great lesson on Sunday, by the way. Um, if you didn't hear it, I would listen to that recording. It was really well done. Uh, Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? But I will tell them plainly what? I never knew you. See, Jesus interprets a lack of obedience as a lack of relationship. If we don't obey, that is a reflection of our relationship. I do this. I know it's a temptation for all of us. We freely put our trust in a mentor that we respect, a teacher, a coach, a religious leader, popular people who we're drawn to. But what message does that convey to God, our Heavenly Father, when we so freely give our trust to humans, but not the creator of the universe? who knows us better than ourselves, who knows the days allotted for our lives, our future, and he knows and controls everything. My dream for myself, my prayer for myself, is that God would keep working on me so that I could become more and more obedient in every area, through hardship and through joy, just waking up in the morning and saying, God, what do you want me to do? Who do you want me to talk to today? I'm tempted not to do it right now. This is difficult for me. My pride is getting in the way. Help me to obey. I just want to obey because it's the only way that we will ever experience true, unadulterated joy, regardless of hardship. One other example, and then we're going to uh, break up with the teens here. Um, let me just read this one verse about Jesus. Because uh, I, I love this. This captures Jesus' mentality to obedience. In John chapter 12, verse 49 and 50, he says, For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his commands lead to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father told me to say. 
Can you imagine what it was like to go to bed at night as Jesus? I mean, yeah, the, the world on his shoulders, the stress, all that, but just knowing that he had been obedient, that he'd honored God, he had stayed righteous for another day, he had done it, he'd had that victory, and death could not overcome him. So we're going to talk about one final example here, then we'll break, but this example will be the fodder for the rest of our discussion. Let's look at Samuel, who, as we know, was the one who made Saul king at the request of God and took him out of his kingship. So let's look at Samuel's history. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, it says, One night Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me? But Eli said, I, I didn't call you. Go back and lie down. So he went back and laid down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me? My son, Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. It's a really interesting insight. Eli is still standing in the stead. Samuel doesn't yet know the Lord. The Lord hasn't been revealed. Eli is his appointed rabbi. He's under his authority. Not all that disparate than our own children. A third time the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me? Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as, of, as the other time, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. He even uses the exact words Eli tells him to use. What do we see about Samuel that we didn't see in Saul? Well, he came immediately when he heard his name. He came completely to Eli. He didn't challenge Eli for repeatedly calling him. He didn't complain when he heard his name called over and over right after he'd snuggled back into that nice warm bed. For teens, I know sometimes we have trouble obeying the way God models for us because there's a conflict in our relationship with authority figures that God's put in our life. But we've got to remember that we're submitting to authorities out of obedience to a perfect God who has your whole life planned out in such a way that true, unadulterated joy will only be achieved through holistic trust that's displayed through obedience and submission. Think about Samuel. Do you think Samuel was tempted to have problems with Eli? If you read the chapter prior, it's all about Eli's disastrous children and Eli's disastrous parenting. Do you think Samuel had every excuse to be like, oh, I know my mom told me to submit to this rabbi, but gee whiz, this guy is a mess. <laughs> His sons are out of control. He expects more from me than from them. It's disparate. I'm frustrated. This is ridiculous. 
he could have made so many excuses. Why should I obey, obey Eli if, if his own children don't and he doesn't make them? Why should I obey someone that I don't respect? Why? Because Samuel, even at that age, was seeing beyond. I'm not obeying for Eli. I'm not obeying even for me. I'm obeying out of respect for God. I believe Samuel didn't make excuses because he had a vision of what he wanted to become. Eli's sons were in great sin. Eli did nothing to stop him. Eli's house had been prophesied against and his descendants cut off. And yet that was the rabbi under who Samuel was placed. And he was going to respect Eli, learn from Eli, submit to Eli, and commit to Eli. And when God saw that heart, he took note and chose Samuel to become one of the greatest prophets. Just like when God saw David's heart and when God saw Joseph's heart and Bible character after Bible character after Bible character. And what on earth stops us from being exactly like that? Nothing. Nothing. We obey because obedience opens the door to God leading our lives. We obey because it's how we display our love, our trust, our appreciation to him who made us. And we obey so that he can use us without any of ourselves getting in the way. That's why we obey. We're going to take just a second and have the teens go with Ben and Tammy into those two rooms. I already forgot which one Mark said is which, so just follow them. Men are in the back, women in the front. And then uh, we'll continue here with uh, the parents.